invite you to open your Bible with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This morning we're going to be focusing on one verse, chapter 28, a very well-known verse, and yet a a verse that we so easily live as though it were not true. And uh, so we need the weight of this verse just to press itself down uh, upon our lives and mold us uh, in into the likeness of Christ. Uh, if you remember, uh, this is a taking place in the context where Paul begins this particular section of chapter 8, with verse 18, I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so Paul um, is, is, is calling us to think about our life now with a view to what is yet to come, the glory that is to come. And uh, he's going to continue that theme in our text this morning. Looking at verse 28, we'll read 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Well, God in heaven, we thank you that you are a speaking God and that you speak through your word and by your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that today we would hear your voice loud and clear. And thank you that your word has power, power to break old bondages and and, uh, idolatries, uh, a power to raise up dead faith, power to give new life where there is none. And so we pray that the the power of your word would be experienced today according to your purpose and for your glory. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we come to a well-known verse and yet a verse that um, I was just convicted as I was studying again this week, a verse that I, and I don't think I'm alone in this, so often fail to take advantage of and to stand upon um, with, with absolute conviction, because this is, a, this is a foundation upon which Christian peace and assurance rests. Uh, as we live in this fallen, broken world, and we all do, and we all experience the effects of it, well, this text gives us foundational reasons to live in the, the brokenness of this fallen world with a peace that actually does pass understanding, a, a peace that's deep and real and true even though it happens in the context of tears. I'd like to start with just a few preliminary uh, comments, sort of set the table before we dive into the words of the verse itself. First, I, I think it's helpful for us to acknowledge that, that Romans 8.28 is sometimes misused by well-meant people who likely have not suffered greatly to try to encourage and comfort those who have. I remember talking with Randy and, and Trish uh, several, several months before Randy died, and they were saying that it was a, a little frustrating when people would quote to them Romans 8, verse 28, as though it fixed things. And the, the people were well-meant and well-intended, and Randy and Trish were so thankful for that, but, but they... Randy and Trish would, would say, we're not struggling with God's sovereignty. <clears throat> we're not even struggling with, his, with, with, the, with the confidence that this is ultimately good. 
What they were struggling with was the loss. Randy was losing his life. Trisha was losing her husband. The kids were losing their dad. And, and if you're there this morning, if, if that's your struggle, that you're just grieving the loss, please don't hear this sermon as an attempt to mitigate or lessen the reality of your loss and your grief. It's not meant to do that. <clears throat> Let me also say this. We're all going to experience devastating loss and grief in this life. Every single one of us. As Paul says in Philippians 1.29, <clears throat> it has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer with Him. And so Romans 8.28 <clears throat> does not mean that grief and heartache will not be our lot. It, w- it will be. What it does mean is that our sorrows are not random and our heartaches are not arbitrary. They are weighted with significance. That God our Heavenly Father is at work in the specific details of our life for ultimate and glorious ends beyond our capacity to imagine. And so that's the first thing I want to say. Secondly, I think it's helpful for us to understand that Romans 8.28 is not meant to be a theodicy. It's not meant to be uh, an explanation for why God allows hard and devastating things into our life. God has many different reasons for allowing and calling His children to suffer. We have to be very careful when we speak as if we understand God's specific purposes in His hard ways with His precious children. We need to be very careful. You see, Job's friends tried to do that, didn't they? They, they, they tried to explain God, and in so doing, they deeply uh, sinned against both Job and God. So this verse doesn't give us, it doesn't explain the reasons for suffering. It's, it's deeper than that. It lies underneath all that and tells us that no matter what the reasons, whatever wise reasons God might have, underneath all that there's a specific purpose that doesn't change. This one unalterable necessary truth that, that God's purpose is for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And so though we don't understand the reasons we can have absolute confidence in the purpose. Third, let me say this, that Romans 8.28 is a truth to, to apply. It's a truth to live by. It's not meant to be put up on the shelf on, in, in, uh, you know, in the category of things that you know and believe, theological truths that you've been taught. It has to, it, it has to come down and become our worldview a basic underlying conviction through which we interpret the events of our life. Remember, it's your worldview, right? Not your circumstances that determine your experience of life. Michael Whitmer in his his book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, makes this point. He says this, Say you have a car accident on your way home from work. What does it mean? 
Is it fate? Did random chance draw your unlucky number? Is a stern God getting back at you for skipping last night's prayer meeting? Or is it an event allowed by a provident God who lovingly protected you from serious harm? In each case, the facts are the same. Your car is totaled, your insurance will rise, and you must go through the hassle of finding a way to get to work tomorrow. But, depending on your worldview, you are either left cursing your karma, or haunted by the unpredictable lottery of life, or cowering in fear before a vindictive deity, or praising God for his fatherly care. Your worldview makes all the difference. This is a lens through which we see and interpret our life. It doesn't reveal God's reasons, but it assures us of his purpose. And so we're going to look at this just four steps, looking at the presence of the God who works, the scope of God's work, the purpose of God's work, and the recipients of God's work. Let's just slowly take our time to cherish this, this wonderful text. We know all things work together for good. Paul, Paul begins with a very strong affirmation. There's something that we know. This isn't Paul's personal um, conjecture, his personal conviction. This is something that we know together. It's a, it's a conviction shared by all of God's children. Every blood-bought child can know this. This is how we think of God. This is how we view our life. That, that we know that in all things, God is at work for those, for good, for those who love Him. The ESV translation here is accurate, but it, it, uh, it can be a little misleading. The, the NIV says God works all things together for good, and, and I, I think that's the gist, and that's how we're to understand the text. You see, Paul's not just saying that things work out. Things don't just work out, right? God works things out. Things, the circumstances and the details, the events of your life, work out to this end precisely and only because God ordains and works them to that end. Paul wants us to see the world as saturated with divine engagement, agency, and purpose. The details of your life are not unknown to God. He's ordained them. He's, they're, they're not uh, irrelevant to God. He's purposed them. God is at work in the very specific details of your life. Jesus says in John 5, 17, My Father is always at His work to this very day. Ephesians 1, verse 11, God who works all things, all things according to to the counsel of His will. We believe in a sovereign, present, acting God. This is what we know. We call this doctrine the doctrine of the providence of God. Heidelberg Catechism asks this question, what do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence is His almighty and ever-present power whereby as with his own hand he upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf 
and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Every event and circumstance in your life has, not, has come to you not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. The details of your life are not arbitrary. They're not uh, just the result of good or bad things you've done. They are designed in the counsel of eternity by an infinitely wise God. As William Cooper writes, deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. We need to have a a worldview that is saturated with the agency, the purpose, the presence, the, the working of God. Second, Paul speaks to us of the scope of God's work. He is at work in all things for good. It does not mean that all things are good in and of themselves. That's not true. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin was not a good thing. Death, as God's response, as he cursed the world, death is, is, is not good it's a curse. Sin is not good. Lying, right? God hates lying. He hates immorality. Paul is not here denying the evil nature of evil things. What he is saying is, is that even evil is superintended by God and must bow to God's sovereign and good purpose for those who belong to him. Evil is not outside of the providence of God. Remember the story of Joseph and his brothers. They wickedly sold him into slavery. And then years later, when they finally realize that Joseph is alive and is basically reigning over all of Egypt, and they're terrified, and and Joseph, uh, he's not bitter with them. He's not angry. He He doesn't destroy them. How is that possible? Well, because Joseph had a God-saturated view of, of the circumstances of his life. And Joseph says to his brother, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God superintended their evil for his own good purposes. You see, by all things, Paul just wants us to broaden the scope of our spiritual vision. God is not just at work in the spiritual things of your life. He's at work in every detail. He wants, he wants us to bring the, the, the reality of, of God and His goodness into the most mundane events of our life. God has planned the exact time and place for you where you will live. He's, he's, he's numbered your days. He knows every word before you'll speak it. He knows all the relationships you'll ever be in. He'll, he knows everything people will, will ever possibly do to you. And in all of these things, God is at work in all of them for your good. The, 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 the consistent thread, the, the unifying thread of your life is the goodness of God in all the details. Now we have to acknowledge that by all things, Paul certainly also means suffering. And it's important to remember that because times of suffering can challenge our faith in the goodness of God. We can maybe feel that that we've been forsaken by God. We can feel maybe that God doesn't keep His word. He he doesn't protect us. 
Maybe we feel that God is punishing us for past sins. And Paul wants us to understand that, that God is at work even in, and you could say particularly in the trials. Even if he is disciplining you for your sin. What does it, what does it say in Hebrews 12? He disciplines us for what? Our good. That there might be a harvest of righteousness produced in our life. He disciplines us for our eternal good. That, that truth is a wonderful comfort. I, I just have to say it was a great comfort to me over this past year. This past year was probably the most difficult year of my life. And I've not suffered much, so I'm not, I'm not saying woe is me. But it was such a, a comfort to know that no matter what was happening in my life, God was at work in every detail. Every single detail. And at work for good. Now, <clears throat> sometimes this knowledge that God is at work, sometimes that doesn't comfort us, particularly in a time of, of, of a great tragedy. The doctrine of providence can be complicated because when you, when you deal with a, with a sudden great tragedy, not only are you left reeling from the tragedy itself, but you need to deal with the fact that, that God allowed this horrible thing into your life. And that's a real struggle. How do you, how do you love and trust God when He's the one who took away your spouse, took away your health, took away your job, took away your child? God allowed that. What, what does it look like to trust him for the future if, if, if he's done this in your past? You see, and this is where it's critical for us to be convinced about God's purpose, the nature of his, his working. Paul says that God is working good in all things. He's working ultimate good, His glory and our glorification in all things. Now again, if we, if we, if we, if we could just recognize that, that when, to someone who's reeling from a devastating loss that, that may not be satisfying, when, when a loved one is tragically taken away from you, your instinct is, is, is not to want the comfort of knowing that this is somehow for good. You, you want the comfort of the loved one who's been lost. So when tragedy strikes, the, the knowledge that God has good in mind doesn't remove the loss. It doesn't remove the pain. And let me just say this as gently as I can. It, it's not meant to take away the loss or the pain. It's meant to take away the despair. You see, pain is an inescapable part of the Christian life. We're all going to experience excruciating pain. It's part of the Christian calling. Remember what, what Paul just said in verse 17 of this chapter, that we are heirs with Christ provided we also suffer with him. Pain is part of the package. We, we've been called to this, and, and yet God calls us in our pain, in our loss, to rest 
on the conviction that we, we've not been abandoned, we're not lost, we're not at sea, we don't need to despair. God is, is engaged pursuing something incredibly good for us. And, and that good has to be real. It has to have, it has to have contours and shape and, and weight in your mind if it's going to be a comfort to you. So what is it? What's the good just to make you a better person, just make you more patient, more whatever. What is it? Well, Paul tells us what it is. And it's incredible. Verse 29 and 30. For those, notice he goes right into it. For those whom he, God, foreknew, he also be predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He glorified. God's sovereign purpose is to conform you to the most beautiful being in all the universe, the person of Jesus Christ. To make you like him in his person, in his passion for the glory of God. It's, it's the, you can't get a more deeper, glorious reason to exist than to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so that's, that's one part of the goodness. And, the, and that, well, that's the essence of the goodness. And, and that's going to be finally and fully accomplished when we're glorified. And everything that God has purposed in, for us. So his purpose in predestination, his purpose in his calling, his purpose in justification. It's all to the end of you glorified body and soul in the presence of God, adorned and conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ, robed with the glory of Jesus Christ reigning with Jesus Christ, to dwell with Jesus forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And that, that fact is so certain to happen that Paul speaks of it in the past tense. He does not say those whom he justified past tense, he will glorify someday in the future, but he says he glorified. It is so certain you can speak of it as though it's already been accomplished. It is, it's so intrinsically bound up with what God has already done and so inextricably related to everything Christ has accomplished that you can speak of it as, as already finished. Nothing can prevent it from taking place for those who belong to Jesus. And, and that good, friends, that, that sovereign eternally wrought purpose that God has for you, that has to become the great desire of your heart in order for it to be a comfort. Because, you see, if, if what we really want, if the greatest good that we can imagine is a nice West Michigan middle-class life, if, if, the, if the best gift, the, the best goodness you can imagine is to have a nice house and a nice family, nice marriage, nice job, nice retirement, if that's the best you can imagine, well then when God takes away those things, you're not going to be able to find comfort in this. 
What you have to want, you see, the bottom of your heart, what you have to want is to be like Jesus. You know, at the, at the, at the bottom, you've got to want to be one day done with sin and glorified in the presence of God. That's what you've got to want. And that's where Paul goes. God purposes these things for those who love him. It's the defining characteristic of a Christian. You find it throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Those who love him. Psalm 145, 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Blessed is the man, James 1, 12, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. God's children do love him, and they want to honor him. They want to obey him. They want his kingdom to come. They want his will to be done. They want all of created reality to reverberate with worship and praise and glory to God. That's what they want. And when you want that, you say, then this, this purpose of God is precious. Because that's what God's about. That's what he's doing. Those who loved God and are called according to his purpose. And here we see the grace behind the good. We exist as children of God precisely because God called us. You see, if, you are, if you're someone who loves God, it's not because you were brought up in a good home. It's not because you made a good choice. It's because God determined to make you his own child according to his sovereign purpose. And friends, that's the rock of assurance. The reason that we can trust that all things are going to work, all things are going to work for our good is that the almighty, infinitely wise, inestimably loving God has called us to this end. Before the creation of the world, he laid claim to us. In the councils of heaven, he predestined that you would belong to Jesus. You would be given to his son. And in the fullness of time when the son came and went to that cross, he bore your sin. And he gave his life in your place to make you his child. By his Holy Spirit, he brought you to faith in Jesus Christ. And by that faith, you were justified by the righteousness of Christ. And you were adopted as a brother of Christ and a son of God Most High. And that Spirit will continue the work that he's begun. He will sanctify you. And one day, he will present you spotless with great joy before the presence of God in heaven. And nothing, nothing can prevent that from taking place. And so, friends, we can rest and rejoice even in the midst of trials. Yes, the grief is real. That's okay. It's okay. It's okay to cry. God understands. He cares. Yes, the way is hard. Jesus knows it's hard. <laughs> he walked this road. He sympathizes. And yeah, the journey is long. But it's okay. Because one day... 
one ineffably glorious day, you're going to experience the full reality of God's purpose for you. And you will stand face to face with Jesus Christ himself and you will be made like him in a moment. And you will experience the inestimable glory of what you now claim by faith. And you will know in that instant it was worth it all. All the trials were light and momentary in comparison with that glory. And you will be home with Christ forever. And that's the good God is pursuing. That's the good he's purposed. Are we willing to receive it, submit to it, to treasure it, and to apply it? Think about the difficult circumstances in your life or think about the things that you're afraid might happen to you. Apply this truth to that fear. Apply this truth to that grief. Whatever the circumstance you might be facing, maybe it's just your own battle with sin that seems overpowering or daily trials that, that seem overwhelming. Just apply, apply this truth. God's at work. God's at work. God's at work. For your everlasting glory. The story of your life is not a sad drama of a person trying to do their best and failing. The story of your life is, is not the tragic story of someone who suffered tremendous losses. The story of your life is the story of a sovereign God who loved you before the foundation of the world and sent his very own son into this sinful world so that one day you can step into the glory of the new world and be with Christ forever. And that must be the truth through which we interpret the events of our life. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what does it benefit us to know that God has created and by his providence still upholds all things? And the answer is that we may be patient in adversity. Patient in adversity. Thankful in prosperity. And in all things which may befall us, place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, knowing that nothing shall separate us from his love. Nothing shall separate us from his love, and that's exactly where Paul's going to go. And the question for us this morning, friends, is that enough? Is that enough to give you courage and to give you joy and peace? Knowing that the sovereign God has loved you and is purposed to do eternal good for you? And maybe you're here this morning, you don't know that because you don't belong to Jesus Christ yet. Wouldn't you want this to be true for your life? Wouldn't you want the God who created you to have this purpose for you? And, and the way, friend, that you can know that's yours is by confessing your sin and calling on the name of Jesus Christ today. Right? This is available to sinners like us as we confess and look to Jesus Christ. And having looked at Jesus then, friends, let's stand on the rock of assurance. Let's walk in faith, even when it's through tears, and trust what God has promised. All things are at work by the omniscient power and purpose of God for your good. Let's believe it. Amen. Father in heaven, you know our life. You know the tears and the fears, the losses, 
every circumstance God has, has known to you. And I, I confess, Lord, how often we forget and how often we treasure other things beside the glory that you've prepared for us. And now, oh God, I just pray that you would use these words, your word, to open our eyes to the majestic purpose and promise of God in Christ for us and the wonder of Christ's love for us as he gave his life for sinners like us that we might be robed and conformed to his likeness, robed in his glory. Jesus, I just pray for every person that's here this morning that this truth would not just go in one ear and out the other, that, that these words, Lord, would take root and bring peace and comfort and even joy as we have the deep conviction that we are held in the loving hand of our Heavenly Father and that all will be well. All will be well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's confess our faith together in our sovereign God and our Lord Jesus who reigns over the, our life. He is the ancient of days.
God's people said, Amen. Receive the goodness of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Till Christ come again. Amen.
Good morning, boys and girls. Come on up to the front. Adults, there's coffee and goodies in the foyer, or you can stay and sing. Those are your two choices. We're going to start out with Mighty, Mighty Savior. Let's keep singing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.
We're going to sing one we haven't sung for a while. Let the nations be glad. today? Do you have a birthday here? Birthday girl? Is she? Somebody has a birthday today. Come on up. It's Elise, right? It's Elisa. She is 13 today. We're going to sing happy birthday to Alisa. Our prayer song today is I Am Not My Own. You're going to be all practiced up because we're going to sing this tonight at our worship service tonight. So I Am Not My Own. I know you know this one.
That is such a wonderful thought, isn't it? We are ready to go to our classes. Do I have a sixth grade?